Well, good morning today. Uh, we are going to be continuing in our series in the book of Psalms. Uh, we've now come to uh, the season of spring. And I have to apologize to you guys, uh, second service here. Uh, my voice is a little bit raspy, as you can tell. Um, it's, it's giving out a little bit, and I'm, I'm confident that the Lord will give me the strength to make it all the way through, but I might just sound kind of funny as we go. So I apologize to you for that. Um, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 138, if you have not already, uh, and to add a little bit more confusion to the fact that we're in fall, and uh, we're talking about a spring season here in the sanctuary, I've entitled my message this morning, A Psalm for a Season of Thankfulness. Uh, and typically we think about that around Thanksgiving time as well. So um, I trust that, uh, that we can work it all out here this morning. So uh, Dwayne and Keith, or Dwayne and Steve, excuse me, uh, the last two weeks brought us through a season of winter. They were preaching to uh, those of you who are in a season of winter and those who will one day be in a season of winter again. And this morning, we're transitioning into a season of spring, as you can tell, as Keith pointed out, by the change in scenery here on the stage. And when we think about the physical season of spring, I think we often think about a break in the clouds, right? Especially here in Ohio, I mean, there's just like hardly any days in the winter when the sun actually shines. It's gloomy, it's dark, it's overcast. But yet when spring breaks, we begin to see a break in the clouds and, and the sun shining down upon us once again. When we think of the sun as well, we think of the warmth that it actually puts off. Those five or ten days throughout the winter that the sun actually does shine through the clouds, it's like you are not putting off any heat whatsoever. It's just light. That's all you're putting off. But yet when we come to the season of spring, the, the sun begins to warm uh, our bodies again as we stand in it. I, just the other day, uh, yesterday actually, I was standing, it was, it was a little cool morning, and I was standing in the, uh, the front of my house and the sun was shining in and I was holding uh, our new baby who was just born a couple weeks ago and just feeling the warmth off of the sun, right? That's what we begin to feel as spring breaks uh, from the winter time. I think that we often think of new life we look outside and we see the grass beginning to become green, trees beginning to bud, flowers beginning to bloom. It's an exciting time of change as we come out of a hard winter season. And when we think of the season of spring in terms of our spiritual lives, we begin to see God's face shining upon us again. Just as we see the sun breaking through the clouds, we begin to feel God's presence in our lives once again. We begin to be relieved from the cold state of our souls through the trials of the winter season. And we begin to recognize God's deliverance of us out of those trials and into a season of rest. We begin to see his promises that appeared to be hidden during the winter season. They become so much more clear to us through this deliverance. And one of the things that I think is especially uh, awesome about the season of spring in terms of our spiritual lives and in terms of physically, uh, our physical spring, is that it's extremely close to winter. And what I mean by that is just in terms of time, right? Summer is a lot farther removed from winter than spring is. Fall is even further removed from winter than spring is. I mean, so spring causes us really to reflect on the winter. Winter is still in the back of our minds. That trial, that struggle, 
is still in the back of our minds. And what spring allows us to do is to reflect on that and ask ourselves, how in the world did we survive the winter season? And what is our response going to be to the one who brought us through? And so that's going to be the, the main thrust of the sermon this morning. If you plot your bulletin insert, you can see the aim of the sermon is to understand what our response should be to God delivering us from a season of winter into a season of spring. And this is a psalm that is written by David, Psalm 138. And so we see him expressing firstly his personal thanksgiving to God for the deliverance that he has received. And then we see his desire that not only he give thanks to God, but the whole world give thanks to how awesome God is. And we see that in his desire for global thanksgiving. And then he returns to consider himself and the personal confidence that he has that God will care for him. And so we're going to start by reading uh, the text all the way through. And what we usually do, I assume, uh, is that you'll probably open up your Bibles and you start to read through the text with me. Maybe you start to analyze it and ask questions a little bit. Uh, this morning, I want to do something different. I don't want you to look at your Bibles at all. Yes, I'm telling you not to look at your Bibles. Uh, just don't put that on Facebook. Um, poetry, uh, the Psalms are written in poetry. And what poets do is they communicate truth to us through painting pictures that we can see and that we can identify with with our emotions. And that's what David does here throughout the course of this psalm and the other psalms as well. And so what I want to do is begin to try to feel what David is feeling. I want to begin to try to picture what David is painting, the, the picture that David is painting for us. And the way that I think is most conducive to doing that is for you guys not to look at your Bibles, but if you promise not to fall asleep, just sit back, close your eyes, and begin to see the picture that David is painting through his psalm. So if you will, sit back, close your eyes, and allow me to read through Psalm 138. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give thanks to you, O God, for, you, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord." For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Father, I thank you for the beauty of your word this morning, the praise and thanksgiving that David offers up to you. May our hearts and our minds be in tune to your word this morning that we might understand that David's response should be our response to your goodness and your deliverance of us from a season of winter to a season of spring. I pray that your spirit would come and would illuminate our hearts and our minds and that uh, you would care for us and encourage us and strengthen us today. I pray this all in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. 
Okay, so the first place that David begins is on a note of personal thanksgiving, and we see this in verses one through three. And the first thing he begins to start out expressing his, uh, expressing his thanksgiving is he reveals to us the degree to which he will give thanks to God, and then he tells us how he expresses that um, worship and praise to God. And this is in verse one, in the beginning of verse two, he says this, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. And this here, uh, David is describing, describing the degree to which he is going to praise the Lord in which he is giving thanks to him with my whole heart. Commentator Matthew Henry says this about that phrase. He will praise him with sincerity and zeal, with that which is within me and all that is within me with uprightness of intention and fervency of affection. Put a little more modernly, Stephen Lawson says this, he will worship God with all my heart, not half-heartedly, but from the depths of his soul. I will sing your praise, not mumbled, but upbeat, triumphant and overflowing. Now what David is doing here is he's describing the degree to which he is going to praise God and he's saying, I'm gonna do it with every fabric of my being. With any and all energy that I can muster up from within me, I am going to give thanks to the Lord. I will praise his name. That is the degree to which David is giving thanks to God for what we will see is God's deliverance of David. And he then turns to the expression, the expression that this wholehearted thanksgiving to God takes. The second portion of verse one says this, before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down towards your holy temple. David says that he's going to sing God's praises before the gods. Now there's many different opinions about what the word gods means and who David is actually singing God's praises in front of. Um, Some people think it's the angels, some people think it's pagan deities, some people think it's pagan rulers and kings. But I think that regardless of who David is before, as he is singing praise, I think that the point is that the expression of his thanksgiving is a public expression. And what I mean by that is that as David is singing the praises of God, he is intending that others hear those praises. His praises are not a a private praise, but a public praise that others might hear. The second thing David says is that he bows down towards the holy temple. And this is David with his whole heart and his whole body, all of his energy. He's praising God before uh, the gods of the world. And now he is humbling himself by bowing before the Lord by bowing before the temple, which is where his presence resided. And this is a a posture of reverence and humility, of David revealing his lowly stature before the Lord. This is the degree and expression of thanksgiving that David reveals to us here. And it's such a great degree and such a great expression that it causes us to think, what in the world has God done for David to pour forth such Uh, such a full, wholehearted praise to God and to express it in this manner that anybody would hear, bowing before him in reverence, this is an extreme degree of praise. What causes David to go to this degree of worshiping God? He then goes on to reveal the reasons for his thanksgiving. 
He says in, uh, I'll read all of verse two. Yeah, all of verse two. I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Now David tells us here the the attributes that cause him to praise God. It says of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, but then he adds on this phrase at the end. He says, for you have a desire to exalt above all things your name and your word. And so David is connecting God's steadfast love and his faithfulness to his desire to magnify his name and his word above all things. And we need to understand what that connection is to make light of the reason that David is praising God. So what this means is that God has made a promise to David of steadfast love and faithfulness and also to his people by extension and that God is not going to go back on that promise to David and to his people because it's his primary desire to magnify his name and his word. And to go back on that promise to David would mean that his name and his fame would be tarnished. God would be made to be a liar. And these things are so closely connected, the steadfast love and the the faithfulness of God to his desire to magnify his name and his word above all things. They're so closely connected that Old Testament scholar Alan Ross actually translates steadfast love here as the loyal love of God. Why? Because his love is dependent on his promise, on his word to his people. It's dependent on his word. And this is exactly what causes God to show us steadfast love or loyal love and faithfulness in the first place is because he has made that promise to his people that I will be your God and you will be my people and I will care for you as a loving father cares for his children. And for God to not fulfill that in any of our lives would defame his name and his word. And he's not willing to do that because those are his top priority. Now this is a beautiful truth, the fact that God seeks to exalt his name and his word above all things. This is a beautiful truth to the one who has laid hold of of those promises of God through faith in Jesus. It is a beautiful promise, a beautiful thing that should bring forth out of our hearts thanksgiving and praise. But there's also another side to this, It is also a very dreadful thought to think about God magnifying above all things his name and his word. Why? Because he also promises eternal damnation and judgment to those who reject his son. And in that case as well, God will not go back on his word. He will not defame his word and he will not defame his name. And so if you are here knowing that you have rejected the son, You do not rest under the promise of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. You rest under the promise of his wrath and judgment. And it will come. And if that is you this morning and you know that you have rejected the son and you continue to reject him, I would plead with you to come and lay hold of the steadfast love and faithfulness of God through faith in Jesus. Because that's the only way That promise is a beautiful thing, is if you are found in Christ. 
David expresses the degree and he shows us his expression of thanksgiving to God. He gives us the attributes that uh, bring forth this thanksgiving in him. That God is loyal to his people, he has loyal love and that he is faithful and that he desires above all things to keep his word and his name, to exalt them above all things. Uh, But David hasn't actually told us yet what the concrete expression of God's steadfast love and faithfulness to him has been. So what did God actually do physically to reveal to him his steadfast love and faithfulness? What did he do? David hasn't gotten there yet. And I want to kind of help you explain why the text moves the way it does. And poetry is different than, um, than an epistle or than a letter, uh, New Testament letters. Poetry, 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 poetry is, is different. It doesn't follow a logical sequence. A logical sequence would be, God did this for me. Therefore, I'm going to praise him. Uh, but poetry seeks to engage the emotions and seeks to engage the heart. And so we see David just right out of the gate, God, I'm gonna praise you because you are so amazing. You are so awesome. With all of my being, I'm gonna praise you. I'm gonna sing your praises to the world. I'm gonna bow down before you because of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And then he moves into the concrete expression of that steadfast love and faithfulness. See, what he's doing is he's creating anticipation for that expression of his steadfast love and faithfulness that God shows to him. And so he's highlighting it and he's lifting it up by means of illustration in more modern ways. If I were to come up to you and say, my wife is so awesome, because she is awesome. Uh, She is so loving and kind. She is so thoughtful and gracious. Man, I just wanna tell all of you and everybody else who can hear me, I'm gonna go out into the streets and proclaim how awesome and gracious and loving and all these things that my wife is. If I were to come up to you and kind of, uh, this is a nasty picture, but kind of vomit that on you, okay? Throw, Throw up all that on you about my wife. You would either be really annoyed at me and not wanna talk to me anymore, or you would be very eager to know what she did to reveal those characteristics about her. You would be very eager to know what she did. The way that I have commended her to you has built an anticipation for the action that reveals those things. And that is exactly what David is doing here in the form of his poetry. And so as we come to verse three, we see what God did for David. And it's highlighted, it's emphasized because of the flow of the text. Verse three. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. All of David's praise, the text is moving down to this very moment, is offered up to God because God answered his prayer. God gave him what he needed. Now we are not told what David asked for, but we are told what he received from God. Um, It says that he received a strength of soul. His strength of soul was increased. Another translation renders it this way. You made me bold in my soul with strength. If you're reading the NIV, it says you greatly emboldened me. So it seems likely that David's soul was in need of courage and strength and the Lord provided it when he humbled himself before the Lord and cried out to him. 
David was in a season of winter, and he cried out to God, and God answered him. And this is the center of David's thankfulness to God. It's that God stooped to meet his need. And is this not the center of all our thankfulness as well? Does God not stoop to meet the needs of all of his children? When I was in need, O God, and I cried out to you, you answered me. When I lost my job and I cried out to you, you reassured my soul. When I was mourning the death of my spouse or my child, you comforted me. When I was diagnosed with a disease and I cried out to you, you brought me your peace. When the guilt of my sin ruined me, you came to me with grace. In the darkest night of my soul, when I called out to you, you answered me. When I was walking through a season of winter, you delivered me into a season of spring. David's thankfulness is bound up in God answering his prayer, which reveals God's steadfast love and faithfulness to him, which is what? Completely dependent upon God's word and promise to David and to us. His response to God and our response should be that of personal thanksgiving with our whole heart, with everything that is within us. We ought to give thanks to God for his deliverance. And David now turns and expresses his confidence in the word of God reaching the nations. That those outside of, uh, that those in his realm of influence would hear the word of the Lord and would come to praise him as well. Verse four. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. Now David expresses here his concern that the Lord would receive the honor and glory and the praise that is due his name. And what's interesting about this is that he recognizes that he alone cannot offer that praise. He understands that God is worthy of so much more praise than any one individual can give him. And so he says, God, it's my desire that the kings of the world, that the nations would know your goodness and would worship you because you deserve it. Do you, like David, have a desire to see the world giving praise to God? David shows that the kings of the earth will give thanks to the Lord upon what? Upon hearing his word. Upon hearing the word of the Lord, they will give thanks to God. Now this question, or this, uh, this statement here, begs the question, who is going to tell the kings of the earth the word of the Lord that they might praise him for it? And specifically in the Old Testament, God's word was only given to his covenant people. So how will the pagans know? How will the world know? Now, David does not explicitly answer this question for us, but it seems that he understands that it is his responsibility to do so. Look back to verse one. Before the gods, I will sing your praise. David is singing as to be heard by all. 
David had a desire to invite others into the deliverance that caused him to give thanks to God. He desired for others to come and worship this great God along with him. Do you, like David, have a desire to invite others into relationship with God that they might praise God with you? Do you have a a picture of God's glory that is so big that you realize that you alone worshiping him is not enough? So much so that it causes you to go out and give the word to the nations that they might worship the Lord with you, that he might receive the praise that is due his name. David reveals that his confidence in the kings of the earth, worshiping and singing praises to God comes from his trust that God will exalt above all things his name and his word. And that when this promise goes out, it will accomplish what it goes out for. And he is so sure of this that in the next verse he turns to actually tell us the song that they will sing. The song that they will sing. Many scholars believe that David here is actually prophesying of a a time when the gospel, God's word, will go out and it will bring in the nations that they will sing his praise. And he's so confident of it, completely confident, that he gives us here the song they will sing. Verse five. And they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. How do the nations know the ways of the Lord? Through his word. As his word goes out, they see his ways and they see his glory and it brings them to sing of his ways and of his glory. But what is the glory of the Lord that they are singing about? Glory is a very general statement about God. It can be, God can display his glory in any number of different ways. The text goes on to tell us what the specific glory of the Lord is that they will be the tune of their song. It will be the content of it. Verse five, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. David reveals that the expression of God's glory that will be the song of the nations is that though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. He regards the humble, he lifts up the humble. Why is this the expression of God's glory that David reveals to us that the nations will sing? I think it's for two reasons. The first is that this was David's experience of God in this very psalm. Verse three says, on the day I called, you answered me. Calling out to God at all reveals a lowly posture about David, that he realized that to get out of this winter season, he couldn't do it on his own, but he needed God's help. David was humbling himself before the Lord, and God was pleased to regard him in his lowliness. This is David's personal testimony of what he did, of what God did in his life. But I think the second reason, and perhaps more important reason, that David mentions this specific display of God's glory, that though he is high, he regards the lowly, is that this humility that God is showing here in this text and coming to the aid of the lowly will be the very attribute that brings about the salvation of his people. 
because we understand that the ultimate expression of God's humility is shown in the incarnation of God in the flesh in the person of Jesus. Well, remember Philippians 2 where it says uh, that, that Jesus counted not equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself to the point of coming in the form of man and going to the cross. It is God's humility that draws him from heaven into the form of a man. And this is, the, this is the message that we take to the world and that the world will sing. A gospel message of God considering the helpless estate of man by coming in the flesh to deliver us from the penalty of our sin. Is that not the song that we sing every Sunday morning? That is the message, that is the song that we take to the nations and that is the song that they will sing. David here revealing his trust that the word of God will go out to the nations understands his responsibility to make that word known among the nations. And he now turns back to a personal reflection expressing his personal confidence in God's complete protection and plan for his life. And if at this point you're thinking, Uh, These three points and and this psalm as a whole is a little bit disjointed. It's not assimilated very well. What's the tie that holds this all together? Uh, Hang in there with me. We'll we'll get to that here in just a bit. Verse 7. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand delivers me. You see, even though David is in a season of deliverance, oh God, I called out to you and you answered me. He is in a season of spring. He realizes that winter will come again. And for all believers, there is in a sense where we walk in the midst of trouble each and every day that we get out of bed. But though winter will come again and though we walk in the midst of trouble, David understands and is confident that God's word to him will not fail. That God's promise will not fail. Why? Because he exalts it above all. He exalts his name and his word above all things. This is reflected in David's understanding that God will preserve his life in the midst of trouble. David realizes that the presence of trouble is constant, but understands that the Lord is the one who is keeping him. The Lord is the one who has promised to care for him and keep him. And the word preserve here brings the idea of continual upholding or continual protection. David goes on to reveal to us a word picture of what this looks like. He says, you stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand delivers me. And what David is doing here is he's giving us an illustration of what it means for God to preserve and protect our lives. And what he's doing is he's actually using what they call anthropomorphic language. This is where you take, um, you take human characteristics and you talk about God or an unhuman thing or object with those characteristics. God is a spirit. He doesn't have hands. But yet we see David saying, He stretches out his hands against the wrath of my enemies and with his right hand, he delivers me. So he's giving us what? He's giving us a word picture of the way that God preserves our lives. 
Now, uh, an adequate but not completely great illustration of this is um, uh, not too long ago when my wife and I were living at um, her parents' house. They have a nice little fire pit, a nice little fire ring, and we had a fire lit up. I think it was in, uh, in the springtime of this year. My son Ezra, he was about a year and a half old. He was a little shaky on his feet, didn't really understand his surroundings, didn't pay attention too well. And so we had this fire going, and it was burning, and it was burning hot, and I was, uh, I was sitting in a chair, I don't know, maybe four feet away from the fire, and he had a hoodie on because it was a little cool. And uh, he comes up to me, and I was eating something that I didn't want him to have. And so he comes over and tries to get it from me, and I'm like, no, like, you can't have it. And he starts to, he starts to freak out, and he starts to, like, backpedal, and, you know, how kids do. <laughs> um, he starts to backpedal towards the fire. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, like, he's right there, and he's about to fall into the fire. And so I have to stretch out my hand and grab his hoodie before he tips backwards and falls into the fire. With my right hand, I stretch it out and I delivered my son from the danger that he was in. Now I said that this is an adequate but not completely perfect illustration and it's not completely perfect for this one reason. We, standing before God, are not on our own and he waiting for us to fall into some danger that he might reach out his hand and deliver us. That's not the way it works. But we are rather in need of continual preservation from God. And so God is continually holding us in his hand. He is continually keeping us. Because we are always in the midst of trouble. David here, his confidence is just sky high. I mean, he is on a mountaintop. The Lord will preserve my life no matter what comes my way. He will keep me. It's just fascinating. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And if he could get any higher, still he does. In verse 8, he reveals that God is going to fulfill his purpose for his life. He says this, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. That is amazing. The confidence that David is revealing here that that God has a plan for his life and that he will bring it to pass. This text is just dripping with confidence. And we know that God indeed has a purpose for David and it will be fulfilled. But how can David express it so surely? This is going to happen. This will happen. Where does this confidence come from? Well, in the next phrase, he gives us the proof in which he rests his confidence. I'll read it from the beginning of verse 8. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Proof, your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. David shows that his complete confidence in God is rooted in his steadfast love for him. Where have we seen the steadfast love of God already in this text? We've seen it in verse two, where it is inseparably tied to God's word of promise to David. Why does God's steadfast love endure forever? It endures forever because the word of the Lord, the word of promise to his people endures forever. Why? Because he has exalted it above all things. It's his top priority. 
That's how David is so sure. Because God has spoken it to him. And God will not go back on his word. Now let me tie together these three points before we conclude. It is the word of God that shows its face in each one of these points that ties this whole psalm together. It is the promise of God to David. The first point of David's personal thanksgiving, the promise or word of God is ultimately what causes David to give thanks to God. Because through that promise, God gives his steadfast love and faithfulness through delivering David when he asked, by answering his prayer. It is the word of God that causes him to give thanks. And the second one where David desires the nations to hear the word of God. David's confidence in the nations singing the praise of God is based on their hearing the word. Based on their hearing the promise of God. And then in this last point, David's confidence that God will protect his life and fulfill his purpose for him is rooted in God's steadfast love which depends on his promise and word to us. So why is God's promise and word to David of any hope to us? God's promise and word to David is of hope to us because it doesn't lay simply on David's shoulders. It rests on all of God's people who have laid hold of those promises in Jesus. All who acknowledge that they are indeed lowly, God is pleased to deliver and preserve. As a Christian, you must be brought to thanksgiving about this. You must, for we know that this promise stands forever, that God's loyal and steadfast love stands forever because he has promised it to us and he will not go back on his word. Because to do so would tarnish his name and he's not willing to do that. It is from this understanding of God's enduring promise to David that he ends his psalm with a prayer to God. He says, do not forsake the work of your hands. Now at first glance, uh, we might think that this is uh, a prayer of doubt that this prayer is coming from a heart of doubt of David. God, please don't forsake the work of your hands in terms of a request. But I think that everything in this psalm would lead us to believe that this was not a prayer from a heart of doubt, but rather from a heart of faith that knew God would not forsake the work of his hands because he has promised that he will not. And very beautifully, Paul tells us this in the first chapter of Philippians. He says, I am sure of this. I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That is the promise. God continually keeping us through his steadfast love and faithfulness. Our thankfulness to God should come through our confidence in God's promise. In conclusion, we should be brought to wholehearted thankfulness and praise to God because of God's enduring promise to us. 
and because God will not go back on his word. We know that that promise will never fail. We should be passionate about this promise being taken to the nations and confident that when we take it, it will accomplish its purpose because God has commanded that it will and he will not go back on his word. We should be confident in God's continual protection of us and that God's purpose for us will be fulfilled because God has promised these things to us and he will not go back on his word. Is this not the cause of our thanksgiving? God delivers us from a season of winter into a season of spring because he's promised to. He's promised that he will. And he's exalted above all things his name and his word. And when he delivers us, he gives us a message to take to the world of God's deliverance of us. And I pray that our whole hearts would be so emboldened and have so much passion to take that message to the world, knowing that our God is so glorious, he deserves the praise of every human being on the earth. And that as we go, and as we walk in the midst of trouble, we will be completely confident in his abiding promise to us. Pray with me. Father, you are so good. You didn't have to promise anything to us. We don't deserve your love and your faithfulness. We don't deserve you to to be kind to us. We deserve your wrath and judgment. But yet you have made a promise to your people. And because you value your name and your glory and your word above everything, you will keep that promise to us. And Lord, how our hearts rest in that. I pray that you would give us confidence in your purpose and plan for our life, that you will keep us through the promise you've given to us and that this message that we have, that we would take it boldly to the world with full thanksgiving. Make these truths sink deeply into our hearts that it might bring forth a life of thankfulness for one who has been delivered from a season of winter into a season of spring. I pray this all in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.